you. I have to go meet them in a minute. The, <laughs> That's um, for you. That's beautiful. Yeah. Hey there, how are you? Oh, it's so Mr. nice Bennett. to see you. I've never gotten a Mr. Dubner. I like it. I feel like I've just stepped into the great hall of Downton Abbey. <laughs> All right, uh, Roger Bennett, why don't you say your name first? My name is Roger Bennett. <laughs> and what do you do for a living, sir? Oh, my wife asked me the same question. I sit in front of a television, watch a lot of football, and shout at that television, uh -huh. thinking it will impact events as they're unfurling thousands of miles from me. And you know what, Stephen? They do. How often do you shower? I'm just curious in that paradigm. It depends. I follow a medieval uh, regimen of washing. Where around uh, November, I sew myself into long underwear, which <laughs> I cut myself out of in spring. Why are, we, why are you asking? <laughs> okay, enough of that. As you can hear, I'm with another podcaster, Stephen Dubner, the host of Freakonomics Radio, someone I actually know quite well, despite the fact in this podcast, I proceed to get his last name wrong many, many times, Dubner, Dubner, you say potato, I say potato, you know him as a man who enjoys talking about stagflation. I've come to know him as a huge soccer fan, a passion which occasionally bubbles over when he tapes his footy for two podcast with his son, a huge Barcelona fan. You That's think the ball was intended for Messi? No. Really? I don't. Messi looks It was surprised. header height on Messi. Yeah. And you don't cross it in for Messi uh, ahead of the defender on him. Uh-huh. Okay. So far an American fiasco, we've been obsessively documenting the U.S. men's national soccer team's bumpy road to the 1998 World Cup. But today, we're going to talk about the 2018 World Cup. It's about to kick off in Russia, that rogue state, which means the geopolitical stakes... They couldn't be higher. Dark news, though. The US isn't even going to be there this time. They failed to qualify in quite spectacular and tragic fashion. American fiasco indeed. But there's still plenty of dramatic storylines and a soap opera's worth of characters to talk about. Messi, Ronaldo, my favourite, the amazingly pugnacious squad from tiny Iceland. You're going to hear part of that conversation on a special World Cup episode of Freakonomics Radio. But we wanted to let you in on some of the action as well. So let's do it. This is American Fiasco. I'm Roger Bennett. You're listening to the Acid Jazz Hour on Freakonomics Radio. Very Hello, nice. late night listeners. Very nice. It's Rog. Now, describe for me your anticipation for the upcoming World Cup, considering that, as we now know, the U.S. did not qualify. <sighs> A darkness. And I understand there there might be personal uh, dimensions and professional dimensions because yeah. you're still working it. So. Yeah. Personally, devastated that the U.S. are not in it. I, I know so many of the players. I know exactly what drives them. I, I know what a World Cup means to a player in terms of their own grind to the elite level and, and to have them lose that opportunity, have that just fall away from them, devastating for them. It's devastating for the American football fan base who are absolutely dedicated to that team. 
Um, the big takeaway is we should stop playing two countries at the same time. Never again should we play Trinidad and Tobago <laughs> one at a time. Let's take baby steps. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, you know, we're going on a national tour during the World Cup. We're going across the country, this great country. Uh, we're going across America, a huge road trip. We mean, meaning men and blazers, yeah. not the U.S. men's national team. And maybe some of them may come along. We actually have some of the younger future mm-hmm. stars going to come on stage with us and talk about the future as part of the shows. But, you know, I'm going to explore the authentic, beautiful football culture, city to city, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., St. Louis, and up and down the East Coast. Um, and so I will say... As an Englishman, there were three times in my life England did not make the World Cup. Once when I was too young to really be sentient, but one, 94, they didn't make the American World Cup. 78, they didn't make it to Argentina. And I will say, in my emotional memory, they are my two favorite World Cups because I was able to watch the telenovela kind of storylines and spooling in front of my eyes without any sort of Damocles of, God, the English team, the mm. stress, they're going to they're gonna self-sabotage, they're going to they're gonna raise my hopes, they're going to crush my hopes, they're going to go out in the most heart-wrenching way. Didn't have any of that. So I could did you just have ex- that lack of stress this year then without the just, Americans? And I, I think, you know, this is what's fascinating. I think Americans are going to realize they just love the World Cup for its own sake. I think this is going to be the World Cup. When Americans look at who is there, Ronaldo, yeah. Messi, the heroic Icelandic story, the kind of Pro Bowl roster of the Belgian team. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, one of the three winners, Brazil, Spain, or Germany, one of those three is going to win it. You've got the African challenge. You've got the intricacies of some of the incredibly organized, passionate teams coming from Asia, South Korea, wow. Uh, and I think America loves a circus. They love nothing more than an excuse to cut work en masse for an entire month and daytime drink. What an alluring possibility for any American. You know, if you are in a bar at 7 o'clock in the morning with a Budweiser, society frowns on that, right, Stephen? Yes. You would not be pleased to be. Would not. Yeah, but if you're in that same bar with that same Budweiser and on the television, Spain are playing Portugal in the opening group game of the World Cup, what are you? You're a football fan. You're a football fan. And this is going to be a big World Cup, even without the American participation. So what you're describing, um, which I'd love to think will come to pass, is an embrace of the World Cup despite the lack of an American team for American fans. And it sounds like, to the average, let's say, sports fan, it sounds a lot like the way Americans follow uh, the NCAA basketball tournament, right? Even if I went to a college that doesn't have a team, or if my team is no good, or if my team loses early. Where did you go to college? I went to Appalachian State University, which had a very fine soccer team, I have to tell you. Top 10 nationally, Division One, even oh. though they weren't Division One in other sports. What's their nickname? The Mountaineers. Come on. My school had a very strange set of circumstances by which a man named Hank Steinbrecher. Do you know oh. Hank? Do you know Hank? Do I know Hank? I love Hank Steinbrecher. You, you don't know Hank Steinbrecher. Hank, Hank oh, Steinbrecher is only the star of American Fiasco. Hank Steinbrecher is one of the single great human beings. I adore Hank Steinbrecher. So Hank, I can't believe you know him so well and yet didn't know that his most impressive feat on his resume was uh, assembling and coaching a team at a place called Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina that was ranked number seven nationally. And I was a 16-year-old, not much of a big soccer fan, 
who was transfixed by this team of um, uh, Nigerians and Ghanaians and oh, some just South imagine Americans, a little yeah. a little young Stephen Dubner with a mullet walking onto the field, <laughs> being like, "Hey guys, I got some pace. I got some game. My bad, guys." And I didn't actually totally get on there. I didn't totally actually. I didn't even go. I did tutor a couple of the soccer players though. <gasps> That's your contribution. But I think Hank is a prince as well. Hank Steinbrecher, for those of you who do not know, was the general secretary of U.S. soccer, essentially the gentleman that was executing every major decision in the 90s. He dedicated himself to the growth of the game. He oversaw it. In his body, a heart beats that is so American. It makes things like mm. hunting, democracy, even barbecued ribs seem un-American compared to <laughs> Hank Steinberg's inners. <laughs> And one of the joys of making American Fiasco was the time I spent with Hank listening to him talk about decision after decision with this 1998 team, which I was fascinated by because squads are fragile ecosystems. They really are. They're essentially workplace cultures. What you need is a collective focus. You have a team like Iceland from the smallest country to ever qualify for the World Cup, 335,000 people. Corpus Christi, Texas, I believe, is bigger. They have hardwired their country to produce phenomenal collective football players. They invested heavily in training facilities. They invested heavily, intentionally, in elite coaching. They have an, a ridiculous number of elite coaches. I know the uh, the manager of the national team, at least until recently, was also a part-time dentist. He was Hamir right? Hamilgerson, yeah. a very good friend of mine. He Is was that a right? Yeah. Part-time dentist on a tiny island that has, I think, uh, 800,000 puffins for every one person that it has. Have you ever had him do any uh, work on you? Um, you know, Are you I've, that close a friend? Uh, you know, I, uh, I've watched him do root canal, yeah. and I asked him, why do you keep as an international manager keep doing part-time dentistry which he did until a year ago and he just looked at me like i was a madman he said other managers blow off steam by hunting other guys gamble he said i do root canals <laughs> like i was a moron he's given it up now because he is focusing on this world cup amazing story 12 years ago he was coaching an under 12 boys team in two weeks as we uh, record here, he's going to walk out with the world watching with his Icelandic team against Argentina and Lionel Messi. It's an incredible career curve. But Iceland have focused on uh, investing heavily in coaching. They've built this elite cadre of players who are not just technically phenomenal. I've been in massive soccer halls where they had 800 five-year-olds with 100 elite coaches. Just It was like China a Mao ping pong kind of uh, like just these unbelievable factories of joy of young kids learning to love the game. And then they, they've developed this unbelievable kind of Viking mentality is the other thing. These kids, these guys, when you interview them, they, they'd say there is Viking blood that flows through my veins. They really, and I thought they were joking. I was like, really? yeah, that's funny. No, like, no, I really mean it. The Icelandic, player before they play big teams you ask them do they think they're going to win they look at you and they say of course we are we are Iceland and I say even though like five years ago you were getting smashed by these teams they said even five years ago we thought we were going to win we just didn't So your podcast, American Fiasco, covers the 1998 U.S. men's national team, yes. which uh, which did 
very poorly. Correct. But you've had the good fortune to turn it into a, an audio tragedy, which is, you know, so you had good material. But then just a year later, months later, the 1999 oh. Women's World Cup, yep. the U.S. women's team, take it from there. I mean, absolutely. Save the day. Save the day. Such a high level, so much enthusiasm and all the things that it sounds like you were hoping for and expecting. Correct. From, yeah. So, first of all, describe the women's team and why they were and continue to be so, so, so good. And why a country that produces such a dominant women's team produces such a middling to crap men's team. Title nine mm-hmm. is everything. There's no other country has title nine. So what you had was women athletes who were exposed to better facilities, better infrastructure, better coaching than anywhere else in the world by a multiple of 10. And so 1998, it felt, and personally, having watched it, it felt like a darkness. You know, I, I want it. I love America. I love football. There's nothing I love more than the game I love growing in the, in the country I love. That is a lot of love. 1994, I felt the plate tectonic shifting under the sport. 1998, it was a darkness. It felt apocalyptic. And it, when you interview the players from 1998, they felt they had destroyed not only their own careers, but also the professional futures for football players in this country. And then along came the women, 1999. Thanks to Title IX, they just were superior in every way. They would destroy all opponents physically, so much more gifted. They would run harder. They would tackle harder. They just destroyed all comers. Title IX allowed the women to develop a healthy competitive advantage. The rest of the world has caught up, and then some female football has grown unbelievably in Europe in a wonderful, sophisticated... And when I grew up, it was kind of scapegoated. Mm-hmm. You know, women did not play sports. Now they do. But in 1999, the women bailed the men out and gave this country joy, gave this country a reason to love soccer again. And please God, 2019 history will repeat itself. There is a lawsuit in which uh, members of the U.S. women's national team um, are alleging that they've been paid very unfairly compared to the men, especially considering not only their actual accomplishments, which are which dwarf the men, at least in recent history, but in they terms win of, things. They win things, but also their revenues are um, are pretty good. So, do you think it in any way affected the cohesion of the men's either national team or the national program? Because the whole program has, um, I wouldn't say melted down, but there's been a, a big change in administration now. So I'm just curious whether that was any kind of explanation for why the... No, no the, there were many reasons for the 2018 <laughs> failure. <laughs> That's not one of them. coaching, the mental focus of the men in crunch time who knew exactly what they had to do and failed so spectacularly. They needed to draw against the worst team on the final day and they went 2-0 down early. and They got a goal back. It was 2-1. They had plenty of time plenty of time to get a second goal against a very poor team. They were resigned to losing, watching them. Their, their legs weighed, um, you know, tons. They seemed to be bogged down. We did a live show right afterwards, um, taking the title of Hillary Clinton's But What happened? Um, and try to understand with... You were depressed. You were very depressed, weren't you? I was incredibly, incredibly sad for the players. I was, uh, I was crushed for the fans who live, travel, and, and dream about this team, their success, but also a future in America where where soccer, which is massive for 12 to 27-year-old demographic, is across the board 
a major league sport in a true major league sense. Um, I, I felt crushed for them. The World Cup is the greatest driver for the growth of the game. It's like a huge wave that hits the soccer's beach, leaves more and more fans behind. And most of all, I felt deeply sad because the World Cup's still going to be big. It's still going to be big, Stephen. But those scenes we saw at the last World Cup where Dallas Cowboys Stadium was full of U.S. fans cheering on the team. You know, there's Grant Park, Chicago, 60,000 people cheering to watch John Anthony Brooks score in the last second against the Ghanaians. Tim Howard saving everything. We're not going to have... I was mostly sad to be candid because some of the happiest collective memories mm. in my life, which you may say are sad about my life, but they're woven from the history, moments I have shared with my family uh, and, and, and thousands of fans across the world. They are, they, they are most vivid moments in my biography. We're going to be deprived uh, this World Cup of having any collective American memories, and it's fairly devastating. Let me ask you this. Um, Lionel Messi, you called him the greatest footballer alive, or would you say ever? He, he's the single greatest footballer I have ever seen. Okay. You've ever seen it. And would that include Pelé, for instance? Yeah. Uh, ever seen, meaning on tape, anything? Yeah. Going um, back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The Pelé, yeah. yeah I'm, I mean, the, fo- the f- football, okay. football nowadays is a completely different beast. Okay. So let's, let me ask you this. For those, uh, again, who may end up watching, some Argentina, not know too much, not care too much. He is physically a remarkably unassuming human. Yeah, he looks like uh, he looks like he's just wandered out of your local supercuts. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and, to, and to understand him, you have to know about his nemesis, Ronaldo. Yeah, Ronaldo, who's the, the opposite in every way. So Ronaldo, Portugal captain, the two of them. It's like LeBron and Steph Curry. You know, which is the mm. great the, the greatest player. Both of them have completely different attributes, different physical. Um, styles of play. Ronaldo is like a bottle of Draco on the wall turned into a person. I, I actually, in one tournament, I was given, I was checked into a hotel and was given his bedroom uh, after he left it. And honestly, I was there for four days and I couldn't get the, the, the cologne out of my wow. clothing for the next three weeks. Did, just you, did you love it though? Did I love it? It's not very me. It's really not very me. They're heavy on the cologne, not very Rog, but he is physically beautiful. He seems to be allergic to wearing shirts after a goal scoring. I often think he doesn't enjoy scoring goals in their own sake. They're just stages for him to, to rip the... his shirt off, show the world his nipples. And he's, got, he's not got a six-pack, he's got an eight-pack, Ronaldo. It's truly a remarkable thing. He is, he is a sculpture of a man, dominant, beautiful um, I, I, I mean, potent is the word. And Lionel Messi. And a good goal scorer, but Lionel Messi, you're saying, is a better player because not only does he often outscore Ronaldo, but what else does Messi do? Messi is the video store clerk, blockbusters. <laughs> you know, where's the t- Tarantino films? He doesn't even look up from his, uh, from his village voice. He just says, second row on the bottom, bro. He looks like an everyman. But when he takes to the field a combination of his vision... His ability to accelerate an incredible pace into crevices of space that really you, no one else sees that space, leaving behind only kind of smoking cleats where defenders once were, just vaporizes opponents. His ability to compute angle, um, wind speed, trajectory, I mean, incredible physics. I mean, so he has a beautiful mind in there. The way he finishes goals, rarely smashing the ball home. It's always with just enough effort, just enough power, only what it needs under great pressure, delivering over 
and over and over again. And what's fascinating about him, he left Argentina when he was, you know, around bar mitzvah for, age. for health treatment, right? Yeah, he, I mean, the, the, um, he was a tiny kid. He's still a tiny bloke, but Barcelona were willing to give him the steroid treatment that he needed, probably the best investment mm-hmm. ever in sports history. <laughs> but in an Argentinian jersey, he has never delivered victory. The last three big tournaments he's played, he's got his team to the final. Yeah. But, you know, it's like LeBron. It's like watching LeBron. It's like an unbelievable player. And the rest of the cast, they underperform around him and they just wait for him to do magic. And he's got them to the final. Final of the last World Cup, yeah. the final of the last two Copas. They both, all three of them have ended both in defeat and with him in tears. It's like, um, this is what it sounds like when doves cry. You, re- you really understand that lyric when you watch Lionel Messi crying at the end of the game. <laughs> and that pressure that he plays under in an Argentina jersey uh, is remarkable. It's one of the storylines of this World Cup. So this World Cup in Russia, which will be a geopolitical uh, telenueva in its own. Uh, the next one in Qatar in the winter, because it's too hot, <sighs> it's which uh, sugar. is related to it's all kinds sugar. of strange things. But here's what I really want to know. Yeah, I know where you're going. The 2026 World Cup will be played in... You know, I don't think America are going to get the World Cup. You do know that. Really? Yeah, bad news. It's not going to be Morocco, is it? Well, um, the, the, on June the 13th, the day yeah. before yeah. the World Cup yeah, yeah. kicks off, in an elaborate ceremony, they will reveal in Russia who is going to get the 2026 World Cup. One slight problem, the person presiding over the ceremony of that announcement is Vladimir Putin. Uh, you don't think the U.S. will get it? I imagine Putin will look in the envelope, and if it does say the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, he will smile at the cameras and just say, and the winner is, oh, Chechnya and Crimea. <laughs> so... Uh, the, the honest truth is, America's a complicated reality for a lot of nations to vote for. So, Roger, um, if Russia were to win the World Cup, what would you say are the odds that uh, someone intervened with a briefcase of cash, a loaded weapon, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, Russia are possibly going to be the worst host since Seth MacFarlane at the Oscars in 2013. They are a terrible football team. They are a terrible football team. I mean, just... They wouldn't have qualified, I assume, if they weren't hosting. Not even close. So they got gifted a... As America in 1994, incredible pressure. You have to get out of the group stage as host to show that you actually do belong. Russia are a hapless, pathetic soccer team. I'm saying that as a a guy born in England. I know hapless, pathetic (laughs) soccer teams. I think America are more likely to win the 2018 World Cup than Russia are. And I will say, and I've said this before, Stephen, if Russia could influence the 2016 US election, I still believe that we have the brain power. We have the, the get on it, Zuckerberg. I know you're listening to this. You love stagflation conversations on free economics. I still believe that America has the creative brain power to work out how, even though we're not in it, we can still win the 2018 World Cup in Russia. Amen. Amen. Thanks to you, Stephen Dubner, for having me on. If you're not listening to Freakonomics Radio, get on it now. Freakonomics.com or just subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. But this just in, there was a statistic in this conversation that I need to correct. I slightly exaggerated the number of puffins that are resident on Jaime Hamagrasen's island. I said there are 800,000 for every human being. 
The American fiasco team went to Iceland and counted them by hand. And it's more like a thousand puffins to every human being. But come on, once a person's got more than three puffins, who's counting? American Fiasco is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Joel Meyer, Emily Botin, Paula Schumann, Derek John, Starley Kine, Keegan Zemma, Ernie Intradat, Eliza Lambert, Jamison York, Daniel Guimet, Matt Boynton, Jonathan Williamson, Brad Feldman, B. Aldridge, Jeremy Bloom, Isaac Jones, and Sarah Sandbach. Joe Plourd is our technical director. Hannes Brown composed our original music. Our theme music is by Big Red Machine, the collaboration between Aaron Desner of The National and Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. Special thanks to Matt Frassica and Allison Hockenberry at Freakonomics Radio. For more about this story, including a timeline and more, go to fiascopodcast.com. <laughs>